Amen. Thank you. Uh, turn tonight, please, to Psalm number 15. Which you've probably noted is not First Chronicles. <clears throat> I had mentioned a while back that one of the things I wanted to do was periodically deal with the psalm because I no no hidden agenda here, but I'm I am running out of life and I am not going to systematically work us through the Psalms. But also we have been hitting the genealogies in First Chronicles pretty heavily. I, I didn't count. I did a Google search and it didn't count. So I don't know how many names we have read over the last few weeks in First Chronicles one through nine, but my tongue is tired. And uh, <clears throat> So I thought that tonight we would turn our attention to a psalm. Let's go ahead and stand, please. Psalm 15. Five, five brief verses. Psalm 15, a psalm of David. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, <clears throat> nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. In whose eyes a vile person is contemned, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. He that putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. And let's pray. Father, we thank you again and always for speaking to us, for talking to us, for creating us in such a way as to be able to receive that which you say. For giving to us your spirit, who is your interpreter of your words. And we pray, Father, that we would, as always, take them very seriously and not treat them casually or dismissively. And so my prayer this evening is <clears throat> from the text, challenge us, challenge our own lives and our own thinking, and then comfort us in the knowledge that we have a Savior. I pray you this blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may, of course, be seated. Well, this is clearly one of David's psalms I made mention this morning, and I have spent, I've taken five or six times over the course of this afternoon thinking, I wish that I had spent more time this morning talking about the significance and the importance of David. I made mention of it in the morning service, what a central figure he is. He is the author of so many of the Psalms. He is the subject matter of books. We know that Moses wrote at least five books in the Old Testament. We know that he wrote the Pentateuch. But there are not very many books that are about Moses. But there are books about David. We're, we're about to enter this phase of 1st Chronicles and from 1st Chronicles chapter 10 through the end of 1st Chronicles David is the subject he is the subject of an entire book he is a towering significant figure and many of the psalms that he wrote 
were written when he was being hard-pressed by King Saul, who was out to kill him, and when things appeared to be very dangerous and very uncertain. And he wrote many of his psalms in that context. But there is none of that in this psalm. There is no impending disaster. There is nothing that he fears. There is no strain upon his life that is revealed in this psalm. It is a man who is contemplating something. It is a religious contemplation of a godly man. Some, some people say that the subject matter of Psalm 15 is worship, but I don't think that it's worship in the formal sense of the word. In, in other words, it's, it's not about going to church and singing the songs and participating in the public services. It's not worship in that way. It is genuine worship, a word that describes our understanding of God's worth and worthiness. And so let's turn our attention to it and we will deal with it along three lines this evening. The, the song, and we want to remember always that the Psalms are that, they are songs, songs to be sung by the nation of Israel and by us as well. The Psalm begins by posing an important question. And that is verse number one. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? And who shall dwell in thy holy hill? And what I want to do right now then is, is ask you however you want to do it. Hold your place in Psalm 15. But let's go back first of all to Psalm number five. I think that we might find some benefit by thinking of this question in light of some of the things that the Psalms have already told us up to this point. Without getting all into the, to the various structures, and some of them are really lost on me, I'm not that much of an academic, the Psalms are divided into five books, and there's going to be some kind of a heading, and you have a study Bible, you're going to see where those book divisions are, and there is generally thought to be some kind of a common theme to the books, themselves and again that's a little more advanced than we want to do but but here we have in psalm number five another psalm of david another psalm of david and i just want to call your attention to verse number four for thou art not a god that hath pleasure in wickedness neither shall evil dwell with thee neither shall evil dwell with thee lord who will dwell with you? That's the question of Psalm 15.1. Who will dwell with you? And David has already pointed out in Psalm 5, number 4, that evil will not dwell with him. Then let me ask you to go back just a little bit further to Psalm number 2. Right, the question is, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? And who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Evil will not abide. Evil will not dwell. And David has already talked about God's holy hill. Psalm number 2 and verse number 6. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Or Psalm number 3. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. And verse number four, I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me 
out of his holy hill. Or Psalm number nine. To the chief musician upon Muthlaban, a psalm of David, Psalm 9 and verse number 11. Sing praises to the Lord which dwelleth in Zion. Declare among the people his doings. And we know by now that Zion is his holy hill. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill in Zion. Or Psalm number 11. In verse number four, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. Or Psalm 14 and verse number seven, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. Oh, that the salvation of Israel, verse seven, were come out of Zion. When the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. So the question is, and it's a subject that David has already addressed in numerous occasions, is who can live where God lives? When we moved, first moved to Omaha in 1984, it was the first time that I can remember. I don't remember growing up as a child, and of course I was a child. And, but I don't remember neighborhoods and subdivisions having names. I remember when we first moved to town and somebody spoke almost reverently about the Regency area, which is over by West Roads and takes a lot of money to buy a house there, Regency. And that was my first exposure to this idea of neighborhoods, entire neighborhoods being identified by one name that pretty much summarized the characteristic of the neighborhood. I just thought about that when I thought about verse number one, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? It is an important question. Who gets to live where God lives? Who gets to live where God lives? To the extent that the holy hill of Zion is where God lives. To the extent that the tabernacle is where God lives. Who gets to live there with him? And that brings us then to verses 2 through 5, which give to us an intimidating answer. Who does get to live there? I, have, I, I really don't. I don't have any idea. And it's just the first one that came off to the, to the top of my head. I have no idea what it would cost you to buy a house in Regency. I, I have no idea what it would cost to buy a house in many of Omaha pre, premier neighborhoods. What would, it, what would it take you to live there? I know and some of you might, now I'm, now I'm just telling stories, so this has, this, this, right, just tune out whatever you want to do. But right across, right across the street on the other side of 144th is a very wealthy neighborhood. And right on the corner, some of you have driven by it, is a house. I looked it up a number of years ago, because you can find these things on the tax records. I looked it up, and the house, the value of the house at that time was in excess of a million dollars, and the property taxes were in excess of $18,000. And that's not what strikes me, what what stands out to me. What stands out to me, if you saw the house, is it is pink. It is Pepto-Bismol pink. 
it is somebody had a bad day and got mad and sprayed the house paint, the, the house with pink paint. <clears throat> a million dollar house that's pink. What would it take to, what would it take to live in a million dollar house? What kind of resources would you have to have to keep up with the property taxes and the maintenance? And of course, God's entrance requirements are not economic. They are much more stringent. What does it take to live in God's neighborhood? David begins to answer the question in verses 2 through 5. And I would suggest to you folks that what we have here is, is not exhaustive, but a sampling. It is touching upon the kinds of things that God would have in mind. And, and they are given in both this kind of positive and negative format. For instance, in verse number 2, there are things that he does. And in verse number 3, there are, and we'll go back and read these, there are things that he doesn't do. And then in verse number 4, there are things that he does. And in verse number 5, there are things that he doesn't do. So there's an alternating format, an alternating answer to the question. So who can live with God? Who can live in God's neighborhood? And here's where things get intimidating. He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. He walks uprightly. The idea is that he is the entire package. It would, it, we, would, we would talk about integrity, and integrity has the idea of being completely whole. There's, there's nothing two-faced about this person. There's no division within this person. They are completely and totally of the highest integrity. They walk uprightly. In Psalm 1830, the word is translated perfect. And it's used in Psalm 19.7 of his law. The law of the Lord is upright, complete. There's, 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 no, there's no twisted, hidden, turning truth. There's no <clears throat> truth and fiction in the word. There's no black and white in the word. There's no good and evil in the word. It is all pure and all right. Who can live in God's neighborhood? He that works righteousness. <clears throat> he whose deeds are right deeds. And not only one whose deeds are right deeds, but one whose words are right words. The idea there of speaketh the truth in his heart is that he tells the truth from the inside out. He doesn't just say what needs to be said at the moment to accomplish his purposes or to keep peace, but he is the entire package. He is the whole thing. He is completely and thoroughly and totally upright, inside out. Who can live with God? Those are the requirements. And you'll notice, those of you that are holding a King James Bible, that those verbs have that E-T-H ending, which our translators always use, not because they're old, but to indicate a continuity of action. These are not one-time events. It's not occasionally you are upright. It is not occasionally we tell the truth. It is not occasionally that we do the right things. It is our characteristic. It is the essence of our nature. So there's the positive side. And then verse number three turns to the negative side. Who can live where God lives? Well, a person who is 
completely whole and true and ethical and upright from the inside out in word and deed. And who can live where God lives? Verse number three, one who does not do certain things. One who does not backbite with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. So who can live where God lives? One who is completely upright from the inside out, and one who never mistreats anybody else. One who never mistreats anybody else. He does not backbite with his tongue. In 2 Samuel 19.27, the word is translated slander. It's actually a word related to the word spy. The idea is that they're on the quest to find the faults and flaws in others so that they might spread them. This is, this is what their emphasis is. In verse number 2, The emphasis is on truthfulness and righteousness from the inside out. And in verse number three, the contrast, not somebody who is given to finding the faults of others and delighting in them or spreading them. They don't do evil things against their neighbor, their companions. They don't take up reproaches against their neighbor. They don't mistreat people. They don't slander them. They're not out to get them. This doesn't mean, and I I don't want to get too far on this because I just want to do something. This doesn't mean that they find every, that they ignore every fault. That's not what he's arguing. Who can live where God lives? Somebody who is upright from the inside out. God is upright from the inside out. Who can live where God lives? Somebody who is not malicious towards other people. And God is not malicious towards other people. Who can live with God? Back to the positive, verse number five, verse number four. In whose eyes a vile person is condemned, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. Who can live with God? One who is completely upright, verse 2. One who doesn't mistreat others, verse 3. One whose value system is completely and totally correct, verse 4. There's a little bit of a wordplay there in the first part of verse number 4. In whose eyes a vile person is condemned. We would despise the one who has been despised. Is kind of the way it would you could, you could deal with it. The word condemned or contemned in our King James Bible has the idea of being disregarded. And again, I think that we would be somewhat helped if we thought of at least one other way in which David has already used this word. And that is found in Psalm number one. Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. So this is a man who has rejected those who have rejected righteousness and truth. That's that's the idea of the first part of verse number four. In whose eyes a vile person is condemned. Not that they from a position of pride and arrogance hold others in contempt. But when the judgment has been made and when the verdict is issued and when the evidence is blatantly obvious that this is an ungodly person, then 
They take the side of godliness. And again, God is not malicious. He is merciful, but he doesn't pretend that evil is good and good is evil. Who can live with God? An intimidating answer. And in fact, instead, if you look in verse number four, in whose eyes a vile person is condemned, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord. These fit together. He rejects those that have been rejected and he embraces those who fear the Lord. And this is a person whose value system is such that they fulfill the promises of their word even if it comes at great personal expense. So they will suffer the loss. This is something, by the way, that Paul turns to in 1 Corinthians 6 when he is chastising the Corinthians for their lawsuits against each other and just throws out the question, why don't you just suffer the loss? Why don't you just take the hit to the checkbook? Why don't you just do that? Why don't you let the bank balance suffer? Why don't you do that? So he swears to his own hurt, and he changes not. Having made a commitment, he keeps the commitment, even if it is personally expensive, personally painful, personally inconvenient. So who can live with God? One who is upright, one who is not malicious, one who has the right value system, one who is not greedy, verse number five. He that putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent. Usury, which we call interest, was not permitted under the law of Moses between brothers. So that biblically, if you wanted to borrow money from, some, from another Christian, you, that, you could not be charged interest. Legally, we call usury ex- excess interest, but God's definition wasn't excess interest. Any interest was excess. If a brother had a need, you lent him the money. Period. You didn't lend him the money at profit. Period. This is dealt with in Exodus 22:25. It is dealt with in Leviticus 25:36 and 37. It is dealt with in Deuteronomy 23:19. God states it three times. You kind of get the idea that He's pretty serious about it. And it really kind of goes back to the thing, right, folks? What are the <clears throat> right? When somebody asked Jesus one time. What's the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus answered that very candidly and straightforwardly, right? There there are two things. The law hangs on two things. Love God, love your neighbor. When you work through verses 2 through 5, there's nothing new there. We're dealing with the same thing, right? Who Who can live where God lives? Somebody who loves God and somebody who loves his neighbor. Now let me just take a moment, right, because here's the question, and it's a a real question. I'm not asking it as a facetious question. How much wiggle room is there in verses 2 through 5? Who can live where God lives? How close do you have to get to those ideals? 
Is this something of somebody who is just really trying hard and generally doing the best that they can do? So that God might excuse or overlook their failings. I know, you're, I know you're not perfect. Nobody's perfect, but you're doing the best that you can. And so all is well. It's okay. Let me suggest to you folks that what we have here in Psalm number 15 is a little bit of a Sermon on the Mount kind of song. Now one way to approach the Sermon on the Mount and the, the Beatitudes in particular Right, is to look at them as some kind of set of ideals and right, it would be great if we could all get there, but again, we're not perfect and so nobody does always get there, but it's the ideal at which to aim and if you're aiming for it, God is happy with that. That's one way to look at it. That's not the way the Sermon on the Mount looks at it, but that's one way that people frequently do. The Sermon on the Mount is <clears throat> very flexible. It can be used by prophets and false prophets and politicians and all kinds of people for all kinds of purposes. But the real point on the Sermon on the Mount, folks, is to point out to us just how far from the ideal we actually are, not how close to the ideal we are. So I would suggest to you that verses 2 through 5 should not be thought of as an approximation or a rough estimate but rather because we are talking about God and his very dwelling place, a very exacting and demanding standard. Who can live where God lives? And the answer to the question, folks, is only somebody who is just like God can live where God lives. Because David has already told us that God doesn't live with evil. So there is an important question and an intimidating answer and an incredible promise. And here's where the consolation is. He that doeth these things, the very end of verse number five, shall never be moved. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. Shaken is the idea. Now again, it would be possible to come to the psalm and read it as people who are really endeavoring to do right are going to be secured. But I don't think that really fits with the way the scriptures treat us and treat the righteousness of God. So here I think is where the encouragement is. We know the one of whom that is written. Who is the one? Who does those things? Who is the one who was upright from the inside out? Who never mistreated anybody? Who was never motivated by sinful impulse, but was always good and righteous? Who is that person? And I don't think I'm going to ask you one to turn to look at one other psalm, verse number, portion of psalm, verse number, psalm number 16. I don't think, folks, that it's a stretch or an abuse of the text to think that David is anticipating Christ in Psalm 15.5 when he is most clearly anticipating Christ in Psalm 16.8. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. 
Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life in thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures for evermore. Peter preached that as being fulfilled in Jesus. David is preaching about Jesus in Psalm 16.8. You can read Peter, by the way, in Acts 2.25. And I think Peter is anticipating Christ in Psalm 15.5. God's standards, folks, are demanding. They're exacting. There isn't any room to wiggle. There isn't any room for sin. Our hope is not in our own righteousness, and it never has been. It is in the righteousness of another, God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that there is one who will never be moved or shaken, and he has a kingdom. And because you have gifted us with faith in your Son, we are assured an entrance into that kingdom. Neither our king nor his kingdom will ever be moved. But we will dwell with you forever. Thank you for a great Savior. Thank you for great songs about a great Savior. Bless these dear people. Give to us strong faith, please. In Jesus' name. Amen.